Everyone with me? I can just ask you to please keep your Bibles open in uh, the passage that Gary read to us, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11 to 16. And just before we come to uh, the exposition of God's Word, you will notice, uh, if you, at least if you're sitting in the front, that we have the baptistry open before us this morning. Um, for those of you that were anticipating to get baptized on the 24th of September, don't worry, you are still going to get baptized on the 24th of September. You haven't missed out, um, but we are very grateful this morning to be able to just uh, celebrate uh, with uh, Kirsten Bayer in her baptism this morning. Kirsten leaves us tomorrow uh, to go to Paris for two years to pursue postgraduate studies there, uh, and so couldn't wait until the 24th of September, and so we're glad that we can uh, celebrate her baptism today. And uh, twice in God's Word, as Gary was reading, we saw... Um, Paul encouraging Timothy to stand behind the good confession that he made in the presence of many witnesses, uh, and also referring to the confession that the Lord Jesus Christ made uh, before Pontius Pilate. And so we're going to witness something of that a little bit later uh, at the end of the service. But please keep the the passage open before you, uh, and let's come to God's Word this morning in a in a passage which I do trust will be of great encouragement uh, to all of us this morning in our walk with the Lord. So I want to ask you this morning, have you ever been tempted to just throw in the towel as a Christian, to, to just give it all up? Have you ever asked yourself if all the hardship and the suffering for the sake of Christ is really worth it? Or maybe it's not even the suffering for the name of Jesus uh, which is getting you down. It's simply living as a Christian uh, in this fallen and broken world and it all feels too much. Your own sinfulness, the issues and the stresses of life, it, it all seems insurmountable. The hurts and the sinfulness of others against you, it's driving you to despair. And if that wasn't enough, as you then look around at the unbeliever, generally speaking, uh, especially if you are looking daily at their Facebook and Instagram posts, it just seems like their lives are honky-dory. Maybe you can identify with Asaph this morning in, in Psalm 73. In Psalm 73, Asaph says, Truly, a God... Oh, let's just get past the reading. There we go. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence, for all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Well, if you maybe feel like that today, uh, or you have felt like that in the past, in seasons of your Christian life, then today's message is for you. And if you have never felt like that, Today's message is still for you because there will come seasons in the Christian life when you will be tempted to feel and think the things that Asaph thought. And so as Paul wraps up his letter to Timothy, and we're not quite at the end but we're getting there, he starts to do so by writing some wonderful words of encouragement to Timothy to persevere in the faith. And so I hope to show you today that God's Word is full of wonderful help for the despondent Christian. 
to continue persevering in the gospel and to encourage all of us to contend for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. By the way, if you're sitting here this morning and you think that real Christians don't struggle with doubt or thoughts of giving in or giving up in the Christian life, then can I encourage you to spend a bit more time reading your Bible? Some of the greatest characters in all of biblical history struggled deeply with seasons of doubt and despondency, with feelings of inadequacy and uselessness, seasons of guilt and shame and failure because of their own sinfulness, often openly questioning whether it was all worth it in the end. And yes, at times, even asking God to take their own lives. But then as you read the Bible, and especially the Psalms, Psalm 73, go and read the rest of it. As you gain an insight into the thoughts and the emotions of these real Christians who struggled with with all the difficulties of life as we do, you will see a pattern which emerges. That when they turned their hearts and their minds away from themselves and their circumstances towards the sovereign God who has promised to never break his covenant of faithfulness with his people, it was then that their strength was renewed like that of an eagle and they were able to continue to run the race and to not grow weary. And so as we then head into the final straits of of 1 Timothy, Paul knows that Timothy might be looking at all that's wrong in the church. He might look at all the opposition in the false teachers, the, the dysfunctional leadership in the church, the social issues that were plaguing the church in Ephesus, not to mention the spiritual attacks and the problems in the congregation with spiritual idolatry and, and the idolatry of money and riches. And then he might even look at himself and consider his own weakness and usefulness and frequent illnesses, and he might be tempted to just look at all of this and say, what's the point? I can't do it. I can't carry on as a minister of this congregation. These people didn't listen to Paul when he first instructed them. Why on earth would they listen to me? I'm a I'm a young man. I'm not an apostle. I don't have the eloquence or the wisdom or the authority of Paul. I just don't have what it takes to carry on. And so Paul ends off his letter with some wonderful words of encouragement. Uh, Not the kind of encouragement these days which tends to indulge our own feelings of self-pity where we so often look inward and and feel sorry for ourselves and we just want someone to come and say, poor little bunny, it's going to be okay. No, he provides true, pure, God-centered encouragement which looks away from ourselves, away from our weaknesses to God. Encouragement which is motivated by the gospel and which empowers perseverance and a return to action. I hope I don't need to remind you that we are in a spiritual war. And our battle is not against flesh and blood, it's against Satan and the rulers and the authorities and the spiritual forces in the heavenly places. And so we need to be encouraged in the fight. We need to be encouraged to persevere because the final victory has already been secured by the Lord Jesus Christ for all those 
who remain faithful to Him to the end. You and I are not being called to win the battle. We are being called to remain faithful to the one who has already won the battle. And so Paul comes in these closing verses to encourage Timothy to persevere. And he does so by giving him four commands to contend for the gospel, along with four motivations as to why he should persevere. And so in the first place this morning, I want us to consider the command to contend for the faith. And that's really found in verse 11 and 12. And Paul starts in verse 11, before we get on to the details of the command, by calling Timothy, O man of God. Now, this is significant because this is a very well understood title in the Old Testament. It's used more than 75 times in the Old Testament to refer mainly to the prophets. Those special messengers of God, spokesmen for God who faithfully and boldly declared the word of the Lord. But when we come to the New Testament, this is the only time when an individual is called by this title. And it's given to this young, weak, struggling pastor called Timothy. Why is that significant? Well, because Paul wants to encourage Timothy. He wants to remind him that, yes, he is young. Yes, he is relatively inexperienced. Yes, he's facing all kinds of opposition from false teachers and, and things that are, are trying to lead the church astray. But Paul wants him to know that his office or position in the church is one in which Timothy stands in a long line of biblical tradition and history as a spokesman of God. Timothy's authority is not his own. It is delegated to him by God because in faithfully proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, in faithfully instructing the church in all that Paul had written about, Timothy stands alongside Moses and Elijah and Elisha. And guess what? They too were weak men. They too struggled with doubts, with depression, with anxiety over their work. They too felt overwhelmed at times because of their lack of giftedness or were simply overcome with the fear of men. And yet, they persevered in faithfully declaring the word of the Lord. And so Paul's encouragement to Timothy starts by reminding Timothy of, of who he is. He is a spokesman for God, and as such, he cannot give up. He must persevere. And although, yes, the context of 1 Timothy 6 is firstly to Timothy as a pastor, to encourage him in the context of the local church, what we will see is the very same encouragement applies to all of us who are children of God. To not give up, to persevere in the calling and the work which God has given to each one of us. And so Paul now gives Timothy four commands, very practical commands, which we can all learn from as believers this morning as we face the temptation to give up or to throw in the towel. And firstly, he says to Timothy, flee that which is false, in verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. The immediate context is then obviously the things which Paul has been addressing in verses 3 to 10, which we looked at last time, but certainly all that Paul has been speaking about in terms of that which is false uh, in this letter. 
the ways and the teachings of the false teachers. We saw last week, they are puffed up in pride, craving controversy and quarrels, producing envy and strife and evil suspicions and constant friction. These were men who we are told were driven by greed and a desire to be rich. All of the problems in the church in Ephesus could somehow be linked to an embracing of that which is false. A false gospel, a false salvation, a false system of religious works. What's very clear from our study in God's Word last week, from verses 3 to 10, is that wrong theology leads to wrong thinking, which leads to wrong desires, which leads to wrong actions, which leads to a wrong eternity. And so Paul has addressed these issues in his letter, and he now commands Timothy to flee these things. Don't try to dance with danger. Young people, don't try to flirt with falsehood. Older people, don't try to pamper to pragmatism. Flee all that is false. This language is common to Paul. We won't look up those references now, but he often uses this language of fleeing. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18, flee sexual immorality. Chapter 10, 14, flee from idolatry. 2 Timothy 2, flee youthful passions. So the Bible is clear that in order to persevere in the Christian faith, you and I need to flee from those things which are false and contrary to the gospel. I think, for the most part, you and I know what those things are in our lives. Yes, sometimes we may be so blinded to them that we need another brother or sister in Christ to come and point it out. But I think we are aware, to a large degree, of those things which hold on to our affections things or people or places which tempt us to think that which is false and to think that what is false is not so bad, to think that we can handle it, it's okay, I'm I'm mature enough, it's not going to affect me, or to tell yourself that it's okay, the grace of God will, will just cover it over. And so we entertain these false things in our lives and yes, we let them entertain us. We think on them, we watch them, we do them. All the while, Proverbs 6.27 says, we are scooping fire into our lap, thinking that we won't get burned. No, says Paul, flee those things. Have nothing to do with them in your life. Run in the opposite direction. Do whatever you must to stay away from anything And everything, and could I even say anyone, who is false, or who is promoting that which is false. So that's the first thing, flee. Secondly, Paul commands us to pursue that which is pure. And this is another well-established biblical principle for persevering in in the way of Jesus Christ. It's not enough to simply flee from that which is bad, that which is false, that which is corrupt. No, we must also pursue that which is pure. 
Why is that? Well, Jesus tells us in Luke 11, 24-26, if we do not replace that which is false with that which is pure, very soon we will find that the void that was left behind will be filled with something else which is equally false and often far more destructive. So Paul is writing to Christians who have the Spirit of God in us, and he says, flee from that which is false and pursue that which is pure. He says in verse 11, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Now these are nothing other than the fruit of the Spirit that Paul has spoken about in Galatians 5. But we need to understand this morning that the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives, the fruit of becoming like Christ, does not come about passively or independently of our efforts. Paul says here we are to pursue them. It it means to strive after, to, to kind of chase after something and grab hold of it. Are you determined to pursue the things that are pure in this world? Not as a religious work or duty which you think will help you to get saved. That's not what we're talking about here. We are talking to Christians to pursue being committed to fruitfulness in the outworking of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So when we face times then of spiritual doubting, spiritual throwing in the towel, life seems to be such a mess that we are quite overwhelmed and we see no hope of change, Paul shows us that the road to perseverance is actually quite simple. Flee from that which is false and pursue that which is pure. Put off, put to death what is false and put on what is pure. Now this is wonderfully liberating this morning because no matter how confused, no matter how muddled and broken and despondent your life may seem today, We all have things in our lives, every single one of us, that are the fruit of wrong theology, that are the fruit of wrong thinking, that has led to wrong desires. And we are called to flee those things and being transformed by the renewal of our minds, we are to pursue right theology and right thinking and right desires. And that will lead to right actions. And this is where Christian fellowship and accountability is so important and such a blessing for you to go to another brother or sister in the context of the church. Maybe it's your own spouse or maybe it's a Bible study leader or another mature Christian in the church or one of the elders and to say to them, can you help me? This is the mess that I'm in. This is the despondency I'm ready to throw in the towel. Can you help me to identify what is false in my life? Can you pray for me? Can you hold me accountable as I then flee those things? And can you guide me and support me as I pursue that which is pure along with you? I love the progression of Paul's thinking as as we come to the, the third command. He says, flee what is false. Pursue what is pure, but you can be sure that as you flee the one and pursue the other, you will face the enemy of your souls. And when you do, it's time to fight. It's time to fight for the faith. He says in verse 12, fight the good fight of the faith. 
Of all the churches, the Ephesians should have known this best because it was to them that Paul originally wrote those words in Ephesians 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. The church in Ephesus, as we find it in 1 Timothy 6, was in the mess that it was in because they had forgotten what Paul had taught them. They had not prepared themselves for battle. They had begun to entertain the doctrines of demons, as we've seen previously. So Paul commands them, and he commands us today, be prepared to fight for the faith. Now the gospel, I don't need to tell you, it is under attack. The deity of Jesus Christ is under attack today. The inerrancy and the sufficiency of the Word of God is under attack today. Marriage is under attack. Families are under attack. God's patterns for gender is under attack. And we are called to fight for the faith. Because our eternal destiny depends on us defending the truth of the Gospel. And again, this is so very practical. Just as with the previous two points, you can go home and start doing this today. You don't need to first get a new job, or you don't need to first sort out your marriage and your family troubles, or you don't need to first feel like you're in a more emotionally stable place. No, you don't first need to do anything, because no matter our situation, we can all, starting today, flee what is false. And we can all, starting today, pursue that which is pure and we can all fight for the gospel as we see it attacked, as it's been undermined and eroded in our lives. And so this leads on very closely then to the next command, which is to lay hold of eternal life. These are four imperative verbs, four commands that Paul is giving to Timothy. Look again at verse 12. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I hope you're seeing a pattern here. There is nothing passive about the Christian life. Look at those verbs. Flee. Pursue. Fight. And now, lay hold of. The, the Christian life is an active spiritual war zone. And as soon as Jesus Christ has laid hold of us and sealed us with His Holy Spirit, you and I are branded as an enemy of the world and we are branded as an enemy of Satan and we will become His target. Now, in a war, civilians are not the target of the enemy. Hopefully not and usually not. Who's the target? The soldiers. And so as we watch the news about wars up in Africa or particularly recently in the Ukraine, what you see on the news reports is often soldiers walking through the streets with their guns and their armor and their missile launchers and everything. And in the background, children are playing. And for the most part, the children are left alone and they're ignored. But the minute one of those little boys grows up and reaches the age of manhood and enlists in the military, and he puts on his army uniform, he immediately becomes a target. 
and he has to be ready to fight for all that his uniform represents. And so it is with Christ. When we change our identity from a citizen, a child in this earthly kingdom, to becoming a citizen in the kingdom of heaven, we enter into a battlefield. And so we better know what it is that we are fighting for. And Paul tells us, we are fighting for our very eternal destiny. Eternal life is at stake. So hold on to it literally means to seize it and to embrace it so as to never let it go. Now far too many people who call themselves Christians today do not understand what it means to lay hold of eternal life. I think the reason for that is because their arms and their minds and their hearts are so full of clinging to the things of this world which leads to eternal death. Now, to lay hold of eternal life, you have to let go of this temporary life, this fading life, to see all of it as transient and of no ultimate lasting value in order to truly lay hold of eternal life. So there we have four clear commands from Paul to Timothy, to the church then, to us as believers today, to persevere as we contend for the faith. And you might be feeling at this point, you know, Clinton, I just don't have what it takes to do that list. I don't have strength to flee and to fight. I don't have the courage to pursue and lay hold of. If I'm honest, I'm running on empty and I just don't have the motivation to do what God is requiring of me. But I want to end off today with what Paul gives as the motivation that you and I need to keep on persevering in Christ. And so in the second place, we see the motivation to contend for the faith. Why we do what we do as Christians is ultimately what matters most. It's the why which ultimately goes the distance. Paul wants to give Timothy the motivation, the why of, what, of why he must persevere. See, if you see the commands that we've just looked at previously as another list of rules and regulations which you must do in order to earn eternal life, well, besides missing the point, you will very soon run out of steam. And this is why I would suggest many Christians do fall away from Christ because they've viewed the Christian life as a bunch of things that we must do instead of seeing and savoring Jesus Christ who has done everything. And so Paul turns now to, to make sure that Timothy's heart is right, that his motivation for persevering in the gospel uh, is God and nothing else. And so he says to Timothy, Timothy, I'm asking you to do all these things, flee, uh, pursue, um, fight and, and lay hold of. I want you to do all of things. Here's the why. Number one, you were called by God. Look at verse 12. Paul's not talking here. Please don't misunderstand this. We often talk about someone's call to the ministry. I've been called to be a missionary or called to be a pastor. It's not what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about the simple call to salvation. Look at verse 12. He says, Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. If you are a Christian... It is not because you chose Jesus. 
but because He chose you, because He called you, and He appointed you to eternal life. I know that there are some Christians who don't like this doctrine, uh, who resist it, and where that leads them, and if that's you this morning, it leads you in a place where ultimately then you remain responsible to persevere. There's no encouragement in God's Word for you if you believe that persevering in the Lord Jesus Christ and the Gospel is all up to you. So Paul reminds Timothy that he has been called by God himself to eternal life. I love the way Luke puts this in Acts chapter 13, verse 48. As the Gospel is preached, when the Gentiles heard the Gospel they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And look at what he says, and as many as were appointed to eternal life, they believed. As many as were called by God to eternal life, they believed. Similarly, Jesus said in John 15 verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And here's that phrase again, I appointed you, I called you, that you should bear fruit, fruit that will last, that will persevere to the end. So persevering in the Christian life starts with the wonderful realization that God is the one who has appointed you and me to eternal life. And because it's God who called you, because He appointed you, therefore you believed, therefore you still believe, and therefore you will persevere to the end. That's an encouragement to us as Christians. God is the one who has called you to eternal life. Too many people, however, argue against this doctrine of election. And they say things, well, if God has elected you and God will keep you to the end, then it doesn't matter how you live. You can just do what you want. Well, clearly those people haven't read this section we are studying today. Because look at what Paul is saying. Timothy, flee, pursue, fight, take hold of, absolutely participate in the Christian life. It's a life of action. But remember why you are doing it. Because God has called you to eternal life. God has laid hold of you. He's enlisted you into his army. He has given you eternal life. He's the captain of your soul. And he will never turn his back on you. Secondly, he says, and here's so appropriate for this morning, uh, you have been set apart in baptism. When do Christians make the public confession of faith that Paul is reminding Timothy of in verse 12, in the presence of many witnesses? It's at your baptism, as we will witness a little bit later this morning. Isn't it amazing to think that Paul is reminding Timothy of something he did probably 10 or 15 years prior, saying, remember your baptism and what that baptism symbolizes. You have been set apart for God. That's what baptism does. It sets us apart. Kirsten, it sets you apart this morning as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Baptism, in a sense, is the uniform of the Christian soldier. It declares to the world, I'm no longer a civilian child playing in the street. 
in the city of destruction. I am now a pilgrim, a soldier on the road to the celestial city and I'm ready to fight for the king. The wicked prince in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress doesn't bother to oppose and fight the citizens of the city of destruction. He already has them. But as soon as someone leaves the city and becomes a pilgrim, he becomes an enemy of the devil. And here Paul is reminding Timothy not only that he has been called by God to eternal life, but that he has publicly identified himself with Jesus in his baptism. In other words, he now has a new identity in Christ. If we think again in terms of our soldier, if if a a young man is a wayward man and he hangs around in bars and he drinks and he smokes and he gets into brawls, it only reflects poorly on himself. But if that young man now enlists in the service of his country and he's given his soldier's uniform and then he goes and he gets involved in drunkenness and destruction of property, it reflects not just poorly on himself, but on all that his uniform represents. For Paul says to Timothy, remember, you've been called by God to eternal life. You've been identified, you've been clothed with Jesus Christ in your baptism. You now have a new identity, an identity which was made public at your baptism, which now sets you apart as a disciple of Jesus Christ. In other words, remember who called you, and remember who you now are. And then thirdly, Paul wants to encourage Timothy to persevere by reminding him that you have Jesus as your master. If Timothy's baptism identified him as a disciple of Jesus, now Paul reminds him who his master is. He says to Timothy in verse 13, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Timothy, remember that Jesus in his trial before Pilate did not compromise. He did not throw in the towel. He did not give up. What did he do? He made the good confession. And so you too must follow him as your example and as your master. And remember, Timothy, keep on obeying the gospel, unstained, free from reproach. Why? Because the Lord Jesus is coming back again until our Lord Jesus returns. See what Paul is doing here. It's it's masterful. He is shifting Timothy's focus away from himself, away from his struggles, away from all the opposition that he's facing, and he's lifting Timothy's despondent heart to Jesus. He's saying, focus on Jesus, focus on who he is, focus on what he accomplished, and focus on the reality that he is coming back again. This is exactly what the writer to the Hebrews does in Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside all that is false, every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us do what? Pursue what is pure. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? Looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, the one who starts our faith and the one who will perfect our faith. 
who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Too many Christians struggle through life with despondency and fear, and we often wrestle with giving up because our eyes are on the opposition, or our eyes are on our struggles, or our eyes are on ourselves and our weaknesses instead of keeping our eyes on our Master. Hebrews 4 says, Since then we have such a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. What should that cause you to do? It should cause you to hold fast to your confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to Him, to Jesus, to the throne of grace, that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Are you in a time of need at the moment? Spiritual need. Remember that you have Jesus as your master. And what kind of a master is he? Is he the kind that lords it over us? Remember what he said to his disciples? Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And then finally, we see that Paul's encouragement of Timothy terminates on remembering that you have God as your king. Usually in Paul's letters, a doxology comes right at the end to shift the focus and the glory to God. But Paul cannot stop himself at this point as he seeks to encourage Timothy and spur him on in the gospel. And so he just bursts forth with this wonderful doxology, which is here to remind Timothy and to remind us, no matter what we are facing, no matter what opposition or trial or struggle, we have the sovereign God as our King. Look at verse 15. He who is the blessed and only Sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable life, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Isn't it wonderful to see what Paul says to motivate Timothy to persevere in the faith. He says to him, you have been called by God. You've been set apart for God. You have Jesus as your master. And you have God as your king. Timothy, you are not alone. I love this phrase, the only sovereign. The devil is not another bad sovereign. The devil is defeated. The only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, he will receive all the glory. He will receive all the honor. To him belongs eternal dominion. And your persevering in him is bound to end in glory. And so Paul writes, or the writer to the Hebrews says in Hebrews 13, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. This God is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? 
So as I close in this morning, I just want us to see in, in closing that Paul's not asking Timothy or us to do anything which... This is not theory. This is not some theologian sitting in an ivory tower writing a bunch of theses that has no relevance to practical Christian life. No, Paul is writing to Timothy and to every one of us as Christians to do what he did as he put these things into practice. That's why Paul could write to Timothy at the end of his second letter. He was stuck, chained in a, in a Roman prison, perhaps a dungeon, who knows, right before his execution. He's, he's waiting to be executed. And he writes to Timothy and he says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. Poor me. Is that what he says? No. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And guess what? Not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Are you looking forward, even loving the thought of the Lord coming today? Are you longing to receive the, righteous, the crown of righteousness which the Lord will give to you on that day? If that's where your heart is at this morning, irrespective of what's going on in your life, irrespective of what it may feel like is happening in your life, if this is the longing of your heart, can I encourage you today to start now and continue every day to flee that which is false? Switch it off. Unsubscribe. Delete it. Get rid of it. Kill it. Whatever it may be. Flee what is false. Pursue what is pure. Fight for the faith. And lay hold of eternal life. And Paul ends by saying in Philippians 1 verse 6, I'm sure of this, that God, who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we want to thank you again this morning for your word which meets us where we are at, not in judgment and condemnation, not pointing fingers at us for having fallen so short, but pointing us to the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are our great high priest. We thank you that you are our Lord and Master who has gone before us. We thank you that you who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion. And so we pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would stir within us just the practical application of this word today to go and flee that which is false and pursue that which is pure. Each one of us would seek to firstly fight against the areas in our own life where the gospel has been eroded and then fight for the cause of the gospel in this world. And may each one of us truly lay hold of eternal life, which is found only in laying hold of you. And so we pray that you would help us and strengthen and encourage us and sustain us till the very end. And we do, we long for, and we love to see your soon appearing. So we pray, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen.
Um, we're going to sing the closing hymn now, uh, which in the light of our sermon is uh, Onward Christian Soldiers Marching as to War. Uh, Gary says to me, you can't remember when last it was sung at Honeyridge. I grew up on this hymn. I uh, hope you will know the tune, sing it wholeheartedly, uh, and then uh, Kirsten and Carl will get ready for the baptismal service and just stay for five more minutes uh, to witness what God has done uh, in Kirsten's life. Thank you. Let's stand together.